Welcome, welcome everybody. My name is Jeff Towson and this is Asia Tech Strategy. And the topic for today, Kroger Markets and why base rates are so tough in digital. Part two. So I really want to touch on two things. Um, the first is totally outside the field of digital and Asia, which is Kroger, which is a U.S. supermarket chain uh, that Berkshire Hathaway has been buying um, this year and in the last couple months buying shares. Uh, so that got my attention. And I'm not going to go too much into the company other than to explain it a little bit because it's, you know, it's kind of not relevant to Asia tech. But it does tee up an issue that I've talked about before, which was base rates, the external view, regression to the mean. Uh, and I talked about that in podcast 61, which was sort of why base rates are so difficult in digital and about square. So, I mean, I wanted to sort of do two things in this podcast. One is to tee up a company that maybe is worth looking at if Berkshire's buying it right this year, this quarter. Uh, probably worth taking a look at. And two, this idea of the external view and base rates, which is incredibly important, but hard to do in digital. So I want to sort of finish up that as a concept. So that'll be the sort of value goal for today. Um, what other? Uh, my book is out. You can see the link in the show notes. That's uh, Moats and Marathons Part 1, which is basically a set of frameworks for measuring um, the competitive advantage of a digital business. And this could be a digital native, like a Square, or it could be a company that is going digital, like a Walmart. Same thing, same framework. So that's the point of that. $6 available on Amazon. Link is in the show notes. And I guess one current topic to touch on quickly, um, SenseTime, Chinese AI company, which does, you know, a lot of facial recognition in China. Well, I mean, they've been struggling to go IPO God, for like a year and a half. They tried to go IPO in Hong Kong, or no, it was, it was the U.S. first, and then they switched to Hong Kong, and then they got delayed. It's kind of been, we've been waiting for this IPO for like a year plus. Uh, anyways, they're on the verge of this right now, but, um, and, and they are, they are, within the newest wave of China digital giants. You know, the wave we all we talk about is kind of 2000 to 2013, which is like, uh, let's say, ByteDance-ish, DD, uh, those companies. But the newer wave starting, let's say, 2015, a lot of those are AI companies. I mean, you could really call ByteDance an AI company at its core. Um, so this whole next wave of Chinese digital giants are probably going to be AI focused. Uh, and so SenseTime is one of those. They've been around for a while. They do, you know, the algorithms that let you know what someone is doing in a video. It's mostly about people, but it can be cars. And, you know, obviously there's, you can do security for that. Um, but big surprise, they have a lot of government contracts in China. Um, Anyways, that's kind of, you know, I've been having my eye on this company for quite a while. I think it's going to be important. I think there's a bunch of these AI companies. However, news out of the U.S., maybe, maybe not, that they're going to be added to the blacklist out of the U.S. There's a couple lists you can get on in the U.S., like the entity list is what Huawei got on, um, and that has to do with export. But the Department of Defense has its own list where if they feel like a company is working with a foreign military of some type, there's a couple lists that can come out of the, the Department of Defense or the Commerce Department. There's a couple of these, um, and they can have sweeping ramifications, which is what happened to Huawei, or they can be limited in the, in the sense that no American citizen or company can invest in them. All right, so there's a spectrum there. This is floating around the last couple of days. Um, I'll give you an opinion on this. I don't know what they're doing government-wise with China. You know, no one will ever know. That'll all be contracts filed in a drawer. Who knows? Uh, I think if the U.S. government is going to continually use this lever, um, it's problematic because these AI companies are going to be in everything. It's not like Huawei, where there were, look, there was only two telco companies out of China that were, let's say, concerning for the U.S. government, uh, ZTE and Huawei. 
Um, you know, that had some impact, but it was two companies. There is a long, long list of AI companies coming out of China. And a lot of them are going to have government contracts. So this could really be opening a much larger door um, between the U.S. and China in their, let's call it, tech war. Even though it often plays out within trade tariffs and other things, it's usually and, and it's increasingly playing out in the financial system. Basically, the trade rules and the financial rules have been somewhat weaponized. Um, but usually the focus of that is technology. It's not finance or trade. It's just what the tool is being used. So I think that's opening a much larger door. I'm sort of paying a close attention on whether they're going to go down this path. Uh, and also, these tools are much easier to export. Uh, it's you know, it's one thing to export uh, base stations from Huawei that happen to have semiconductors that were out of TSMC. You can kind of check that and see if they're being used in London. It is very hard to audit where software algorithms are being used because all you need is a connection back into China and you can run the algorithms. So it's a lot harder to control the spread of technology when it's software versus a chip or a base station or a smartphone and whether it has Android or not. Anyways, put that on your radar as something to pay attention to. We'll see what happens in the next week. Okay, uh, with that, let's get into the topic for today. My standard disclaimer, nothing in this podcast or my writing on the website is investment advice. The numbers and information for me and any guests may be incorrect. The views and opinions expressed by me may no longer be relevant or accurate. Overall, investing is risky. This is not investment advice. Do your own research. Um, oh, one last thing I didn't mention. For those of you who are subscribers, um, I sent you part one and part two about uh, A&E uh, logistics. It's a bad term, A&E. It's a Chinese word, Anung. But it, it's a really interesting company, not in the sense that I think it's maybe a great investment. It may or may not be. But I think it's a great example to understand logistics networks, physical networks, and why they can be so powerful. You know, FedEx, DHL. We do see these global giants based on this. So that's kind of been on my short list for a while. I sent you part ones and part two. I'm going to send you part three in the next day. Um, I think this is pretty good. Like, I'm feeling good about this. Like, I'm trying to impress you a bit on this one. I think the framework I'm going to give you for taking apart this company really nails it. Like, I feel good about this one. Sometimes it's like, hey, I think that was pretty good, maybe not so good. I think I really got this one nailed. So anyways, that's on the way uh, for subscribers. If you want to be subscribers, go over to jefftausen.com, sign up there. There's a free 30-day drop. Okay, let's get in the content. Now, the two concepts for today are the external versus the internal view and regression to the mean. Uh, pretty common discussed uh, topics in investing, uh, but they're important, super important. So those will be the two ideas. You can find them in the concept library. And let me kind of start with Kroger. Now, Kroger is just a supermarket. Like, no offense to you know people who like Kroger. It's a supermarket. Um, it's been around since 1883 in the United States. Um, you know, 2,700 supermarkets across the United States. They're under, you know, different brand names, but it's basically, they're all selling pretty much the same stuff, um, which is we want to be your grocery store, your local grocery store that is sort of a one-stop shop. And we see this business model all the time. Not business model. We see this value proposition to consumers all the time in some retailers like Walmart and whatever, which is like, we're going to offer you a very, very wide selection of products such that there's no reason to go anywhere else. Oh, it's usually two things. It's like, we're going to offer you a very wide selection. It's going to be relatively close to your house. And we're going to have the lowest prices for reasonable quality acceptable quality and therefore you have no reason to go anywhere else one-stop shop walmart is a much larger spectrum of skus and they drive the low cost thing harder you know everyday low pricing that's the walmart slogan costco took that and sam's club took that even further 
which is like, look, we're going to have smaller items, but we're going to be so cheap that you buy things in bulk. And we're not even going to make our money on selling food, which they really don't. They make their money on membership. You sign up and you know they, they make their money there and they basically pass on the food to you at negligible gross margins. Okay, so let's say we're looking at a spectrum of this business model. Costco Sam's Club is the more extreme version. Dial that up one level. We're probably at Walmart, superstores, hypermarket, well, superstores. We dial that up a little bit more. We start to get to supermarkets and hypermarkets. They tend to be a bit smaller and they tend to focus on groceries. So this is your one-stop shopping, but as a supermarket, you know. So general merchandise, uh, organic food, nutritional food, uh, perishables, things like seafood, meat, um, dairy. Um, And why is that different? Well, because most people go to the supermarket a couple times a week. You may not go to Walmart every couple days, but when you're cooking dinner and things like that, you go. So the higher frequency, uh, they tend to be a little closer to your house and they tend to be smaller than, say, the Walmart superstore, which is, you know, further away. Now, that would be sort of your standard supermarket that has evolved over the U.S. in 100 years. Uh, They've added a couple things to that. Um, They've added pharmacies. So if you look at the 2,700 supermarkets under the Kroger, let's say, system, distribution, I won't call it a platform, uh, 2,200 of those have pharmacies. Uh, They've started to add fuel centers, uh, which may or may not be profitable. About 1,500 of them have fuel centers. So you can go out and, you know, get gas while you're there. And, you know, depending on their strategy, they may really subsidize the gas, which is a great, you know, hey, we can get gas a lot cheaper. Let's go there when we go shopping and we'll fill up. Um, And they've been building this for a long time. Now, one of the things we see with supermarkets as a massive retail footprint, which is what they are, that we don't necessarily see with, let's say, Walmart is we start to see them not just stocking and selling, but we also start to see them doing production, where they will often have their own food production centers. These might be uh, bakeries. Uh, They can actually be coffee roasters sometimes. It depends how, like if you go to Whole Foods, they have quite a lot of sort of production they do themselves because they're more of a premium band. Kroger's, it's much less uh, bakeries, things like that. So you do get a little bit more, what's called it, vertical integration, where, yes, they're a retailer, but they also do some manufacturing and processing of food. Uh, probably the other thing to think about with a company like this, and this is just kind of big retail 101. I'm not telling you anything particularly uh, compelling here, I don't think. And they have a couple store formats. They do, they have... Um, You know, they have kind of their combo store, which is mostly we're selling food and drugs, uh, pharmacy. Then they'll have the multi-department store, which is a bit bigger. Well, I'm sorry, shouldn't say bigger, but a bit larger than the combo store. They might offer some departments there that they wouldn't offer. Like maybe they'll have more general merchandise, uh, apparel. Maybe they'll have electronics, automotive, toys. So you're starting to look more like a superstore. Um, you could have a marketplace store, which would be smaller than a multi-department store. And then they do have some sort of what they call price impact warehouses that get you closer to a Costco model. So they got a couple formats they're doing, but overwhelmingly we're looking at their combo store, your big supermarket. That's mostly what they're doing. Now, the last factor to kind of keep in mind when you're looking at a model like this is private label. Right, like private labels, pretty awesome. Um, what, like a store like Amazon will get criticized for doing private label all the time because you know people build their online stores there, backpack, makeup, shoes, and then Amazon Basics will offer their own version of a backpack or an Allbirds shoe, and it looks pretty similar, but it's a lot cheaper. And you know they get criticized for this, and this has largely been banned in India. India now says you can be a marketplace platform for other merchants and brands or you can be a retailer, but you can't be both. 
but Amazon will say something like, look, stores like Walmart and every other retailer have been doing this forever. You know, Walmart has its own brands on the shelves of cola or bread or whatever, right next to, you know, the Coca-Cola's and whatever. It's a very common strategy. It's a smart thing to do. Uh, so e-commerce companies do do this. Um, some of them, like Amazon, do. Uh, others don't. Uh, so, you know, Kroger has a big R brands, R brands, about 15,000 different private label products that they put in various tiers The Private Selection, which is premium. The Kroger brand, which is the vast majority. The Simple Truth brand, which is organic. So they're kind of playing all that. Um, And that's a pretty standard big supermarket retail uh, model. And um, yeah, so big operation. 465,000 employees, including part-time. They serve 9, 10 million customers every year. Um, And they've got a lot of union and 350 union agreements. So it's complicated. Okay, so here's my so what. Why am I talking about this? Because I'm trying to figure out why Warren Buffett has been buying this company. Oh, and if you look at the financials, um, they basically look like your standard supermarket in the U.S. financials, which are... Uh, pretty good revenue in the case of, um, let's say, 2020 sales at uh, Kroger, $132 billion U.S. dollars, um, up from $122 billion in 2019 and up from $122 billion in 2018. So what's interesting is the revenue is relatively flat, but then 2020 hits, pandemic year. What happens? Uh, their revenue goes up. You know, and people forget, you know, when when all the restaurants and everything shut down, people still have to eat. It turns out selling daily necessities like food um, did quite well if you weren't a restaurant. People still buy. They just did a lot more cooking at home or they had it deliver. And they had an online channel, which they ramped up a bit. So we've seen that at a lot of, you know, this sort of company over the last 2020. So, okay, the revenue took a, a $122 billion up to $132 billion, 219 to 220 Nice. But then when you look at their sort of merchandise costs and all of this and their rent and their depreciation and amortization, their operating profit, about 2%. And that's pretty common. 2019, 2%. 2018, 2.6%. That's pretty common for supermarkets. Um, So that's kind of when I started looking at this and thinking, look, when I look at this company operationally, not much has happened in 2018, 2019, 2020, this is a company where base rates and the external view are really important. And I'll talk about more about what that is. But this to me was a prime example of base rates and external view as an approach to evaluating a company. And then the question would be like, okay, why did Buffett buy this? I'm not seeing any massive change in the operations. I'm not seeing it. You know, is it just the price was good? Was that it? Or was there some one-time event baked in here? Like, you know, there was some government assistance and some other things. Um, The company's been tightening up the hatches in terms of their working capital. And managing inventory is really, really important. And if you want a great tutorial on how to manage LIFO versus FIFO inventory and how you account for that, read the Kroger 10K. They lay out their inventory management and how they account for the cost of it. And they lay out the return on invested capital really quite well. This is one of the the better, if not one of the best written uh, 10Ks I've seen. I suspect that has a lot to do how, with how they got Buffett's attention. Uh, this is clearly someone who's ever writing this company speaks his language in terms of business. Um, I suspect that's part of it. Anyways, that's sort of a tee up to Kroger in the U.S. Um, it's worth taking a look at. It's it's worth trying to ask yourself, is this a decent investment? And what has changed in 2020 versus 2019 such that Berkshire was involved in ramping up? Because the operations don't look dramatically different. They look pretty similar. Um, 
And that gets me to sort of the topic for today. And I talked about Sun Art Retail, which was the uh, hypermarket um, in China, which Alibaba bought. We really saw, and there's a podcast for this, just look up Sun Art Retail on the company library. Um, their financials looked very similar. I mean, the revenue line looked very, I mean, it was the same. Like if you looked at 2018, 2019, 2020, their financials did not move at all in China during the pandemic at all. Now they've been purchased by Alibaba. So they're sort of tied with the Alibaba ecosystem. That's why I thought that was so interesting. But the financials look very, very similar. We look at Sun Art, we look at Kroger. Uh, it tees up this idea of the external versus the insider view and regression to the mean. And so that's sort of the concepts for today. So now let me switch to that. But I encourage you to read this 10K and especially look for how they detail the accounting and cost structures for inventory management. It's really well laid out. Oh, one last comment on this. They do have a digital initiative. And I did look at their digital initiative and how they described it and what they're doing. And um, it wasn't well thought out in my opinion. In fact, I think that it's really an interesting contrast because when they talk about their stores and inventory and management and sales and product mix, um, the description is outstanding. The language is very precise. The metrics they're using are very good. And then when they switch to their digital, it is really half-baked thinking. Uh, it's clearly not their skill set and they don't know how to talk about it in my opinion. So they, they kind of mentioned, well, we're going to do personalization. We have an online distribution channel, which means you can order and then pick up. So a lot of these big retailers, you know, the easiest thing for them to do was to put up a website and then say, order online and come pick it up. Pick up and go. Not bad. And then they, you know, they're becoming more data driven where they're starting to personalize what you see on the e-commerce website to you, which they don't do to you personally when you walk into the store. So this is really, if you look at my six levels of digital competition, this is the digital operating basics. And it's really basic. Like, you know, it, it doesn't even compare to what we're seeing in China. So and their language and their thinking is not good. They're not talking about entertainment and getting customer engagement. And they're not doing live streaming. And they're not putting their salespeople. I mean, they're not doing anything we would see at the most basic department store or supermarket in China. This is really primitive digital thinking. Um, but, I mean, it's not terrible. It's, it's, it's a reasonable first step. We'll put up the e-commerce as an alternative distribution channel. We're probably not going to ship much to the home because this is perishables and it's difficult to deliver perishables in the U.S. It's easy to do in China and other places, harder in, in the U.S. So we'll have pickup at the you know outdoor counter. And as we get more data on you, we will start to personalize the website or the mobile app to you. Fine. Digital operating basics. That's, you know, level five of my... Uh, six levels but I'm not going to bag on them but yeah it's not impressive and the contrast between that and how they talk about the retail operation is really stark anyways next topic so what is the external versus the internal view now I talked about this in podcast 61 and I've written about it you can just you can go to the concept library click on it you'll see the past articles there um, but it's incredibly important actually in the podcast 61. I did say I would do part two. <laughs> that was part one and I didn't really get to it. So this is technically part two. Uh, I mean, it's it's super important. And basically the idea is um, when we analyze a company, whether you know, you're looking at the company or we're looking at it as an investment. So then there's going to be other things you'll look at like price. Um, we can look at the company with the inside view versus the outside view. And we are heavily biased to look at the inside view. Now, what is the inside view? Is we look at a company and we start to gather information about that company. Maybe we focus on an issue. What is their sales mechanism? What is their business model? I mean, most of the stuff I'm talking about is inside view. And then we start to sort of maybe extrapolate forward. Well, what is this company going to do? Um, and then from there, let's say 
75% of the attention is going to be on this one company. And then we will start to probably make comparisons to other companies. Well, how does Kroger relate to, to SunArt? How does it relate to Walmart? We'll start to make those comparisons. You know, that's pretty normal. That's say another 20 or 30%. Um, and then we also kind of, the way our brains work, we will start to make connections between this company and our past companies we've looked at or we've worked at our own experience. You know, we tend to really rely heavily on our own experience, on frameworks that we like, on rules of thumb. Um, this is all sort of inside uh, thinking. And we are very hardwired to think this way. This is really how our brains work. Um, we, we're going to look at the company. We're going to look at some competitors. And maybe we will broaden it to the industry but we'll also think about a handful of case studies and we'll try and draw connections and lessons from those. Uh, the problem with this approach is it is, it is data light. Um, it heavily over relies on a small number of companies and a small number of case studies. And it really plays in to our inherent weaknesses of being overconfident and believing that we have skills. Um, that is a pretty big problem most, I definitely have this problem. Um, now let's contrast that, put that aside for a moment, and let's say look at the external view. An external view is, um, let's look at all the supermarket companies in the United States in the aggregate, all of them. Let's have a high-level, industry-wide, deeply data-driven, statistical approach to this. And let's set aside our own information, our own experiences. We are going to look at a reference class, or what people call the base rates, for this thing. And then we will look at it and within building an external view, you, you basically build a reference class of lots and lots of companies, and then you come up with base rates for certain metrics. And in podcast 61, if you, well, I'll put it in the show notes here. I've listed several base rates you should have in mind. Sales growth, gross profit, uh, gross profits divided by assets, operating profit margin, earnings growth, cash flow return on investments. These are standard base rates. And we will develop those for the whole industry. And it forces you to recognize, look, most supermarkets in the U.S. make 2%. They just do. So when you get really into this new, novel, cool supermarket that's going digital and the management's hot and, ooh, it's got a great thing and... They say we're going to make, you know, 19% operating profits as a supermarket. You can get very lost in the internal view and the business model and why it's stronger. But then when you switch to the external view, you're like, look, every supermarket makes 2%. The really good ones make 3 The lower ones make 1.5%. Why do we think this is going to be such an outlier? Uh, and it forces you to confront that. That's really, really helpful. Um, it's just sort of a data-driven, non-personal approach. And, um, you know, let's say this is also helpful when you're thinking about your own career. Like, do I want to be a dentist in life? My brother's a dentist. My father was a dentist. He's retired now. You can do base rates for dentists. This is how much they make. It's pretty obvious. Dentists don't make $10 million a year. They don't in the U.S. anywhere. But, you know, they also don't make 55. They make 200. You know, maybe if they scale up their practice and they've got a couple partners, maybe you're in the hundreds higher than that. Maybe if you really scale this thing up and you got 20 or 30 hygienists working like a factory cleaning people's teeth, something like that, you can get out. But generally speaking, when you look at the, you know, the sort of, base rates, that's what you're looking at. And any dentist who says, I want to be a dentist and I want to make $10 million a year, not going to happen. So that's a really useful thing. Um, but the external view is sort of, it's based on the structure of the industry, averages. It's very data heavy. 
So now the trick with getting base rates is you need lots of data on hundreds of companies and you want the experiences of hundreds of executives. And that in many cases can give you clear numbers on the odds of success and what success looks like. It needs to be deep data, it needs to be testable, and you really want to use the external view to kill or correct the inside view. Um, that's kind of the idea. Now, if you go to Podcast 61 or just look at the notes, um, the other idea that goes hand in hand with this is regression to the mean. You know, people always talk about Sports Illustrated as, you know, the Sports Illustrated curse. If you're on the cover as a great baseball player, football player, if you're on the cover of Sports Illustrated, oh my God, this guy's the best boxer we've ever seen. You know, eight, 12 to 18 months later, your performance is going to fall. It's almost guaranteed. They call it the curse or something like this. If you are an amazing stock picker, and oh my God, this is the best stock picker in New York at a hedge fund. Uh, in 2020, almost for sure, that person's performance is going to decline because when they make the cover of the magazine, you're looking, you know, you're looking at an outlier to the mean. You're looking at an outlier to average performance, and over time, most things will revert to the mean. They will regress to the mean. So when you get on the cover of Sports Illustrated, you're seeing that sort of extreme moment when someone has you know hit the ball over the fence a ridiculous amount of times, the performance is going to come back to the average base rate. Almost, usually. So you look at sort of what is the average level of performance for this skill, what its activity, and what is the rate of regression to that average uh, for this particular. And sometimes it can be fast, like stock performance is pretty fast. Uh, other things it cannot so that's kind of the idea you want to look. And you can see books of these things. You know, you can, you can do them yourself and you can find books. And it tees up one last idea, which is the idea of skill versus luck. You want to ask yourself, this activity, is it about skill or is it about luck? And what is the relationship there? If it is a game of luck... Um, where skill is not a big component. And I would say supermarkets, there's not a lot of outstanding skill in supermarkets. So if you're seeing outlier performance in a supermarket, it is more likely that, look, this is just some luck. Something happened, this company did pretty well, but over five years, 10 years, it is very hard to be dramatically more skillful in the management of a supermarket than someone else. So outlier performance is probably related to luck. If you think that's the case, then it's going to regress to the mean much, much faster. Luck-based performance that's amazing regresses fast. If it's a skill-based game, like, look, this dude has been investing successfully for five years. Okay, you can have outlier performance as an investor that is based on skill. And it can actually stay as an outlier for a long time. Um, you know, you kind of need to think about it. baseball performance. Yes, maybe uh, boxing. You can be more skillful as a boxer, but you know, most boxers, you're in your prime for a couple of years, and then you know the the new kid's much faster than you and knocks you in the jaw. So, yeah, you can have skill there, but it fades pretty quick. So you need to kind of assess these things. Buffett is a outlier, a skill based outlier, for 50 years. But there's a lot of investors who do real well for two to three years, and then you look five years later and they're back in the they're back in the middle of the pack. Because it was just random. Uh, anyway, so that's kind of the other idea. Those are the three ideas. And I've given you some common metrics for base rates. Look at the show notes. So it's not surprising that someone like Buffett would invest uh, in a retailer. He doesn't typically invest in supermarkets. I mean, they've said in the past, like him or Charlie, there's only a couple business models they like in retail. One of them is clearly Costco. Charlie Munger loves Costco uh, and Walmart and a couple others. Um, so it is kind of unusual for him to get into supermarkets. What is not unusual is that he's looking at a sector with very clear base rates where you can really predict this um, in a way that you couldn't predict other businesses. Uh, 
I mean, entertainment, hit TV shows, hit music, very hard to predict. Um, now, that brings us to the, the point, which is, why is it so hard to do the external view in digital? Because we don't have a reference class. We almost, you know, so much of digital is always new. It's a new digital tool. It's a new digital business model. Um, that makes going from, hey, I'm studying the heck out of this company to, hey, I'm, I'm also looking at sort of a reference class to make it more predictable for me. We often don't have a reference class. That makes it difficult. I, mean, I think you kind of, if you've been listening to me for a while, you know I like certain business models. I like marketplaces for products. Taobao, Shopee. Uh, I like those business models. Why? Because I understand them. I think they're powerful. I can understand where the competitive strength is coming from. And there's a pretty good reference class for those businesses. I'm not looking at one company we've never seen before, like a, I don't know, think up one like Show or, or TikTok, which was a new thing. No, I can, I can find a lot of these companies. I can find them in Ozone in Russia. I can find them in Mercado Libre in Argentina and Brazil. I can find them in Shopee and Lazada and Southeast. I can build a reference class for this business model and then start to complement what I think is a fairly, well, I'll pat myself on the back. I think I have a, a better than most people understanding of how these businesses work, but I can also complement that and correct that with a external view. And that's important because I don't trust myself that much. So I want that. So I can get an external view. Uh, I like search engines because I can look at, you know, there's not a ton of search engines, but they've been around for 20 years. We know this model. I like marketplace for services, uh, C-Trip. Uh, even Didi and Uber and Airbnb definitely is really a pretty compelling business model. Uh, Booking.com, Agoda, you know, Expedia. There, there's enough of these, you know, Upwork, Fiverr, there's enough of these marketplaces for services that I can start to build a reference class. And that's really what I'm looking for. Uh, I get nervous when I don't have a reference class. And um, that's not uncommon. Uh, arm holding in um, the UK. You know, they uh, SoftBank bought them. Tremendous competitive advantages. I have a heart. You know, they do sort of the IP library for making semiconductors and things. You know, it's very hard to find any reference company, let alone a base rate for them. They're pretty unique. Um, operating systems, I like operating systems. Um, I can understand Microsoft. Um, I can understand uh, iOS. I can understand Android. I've been going through a company recently, uh, Red Hat, which is an open source operating system for enterprises. Uh, those of you who are subscribers, I'll be sending you quite a bit on this company it's been since been there's been an acquisition but there's a lot of good lessons on how to think about operating systems which are a type of platform business model that i have put under innovation platforms it's one of my five so i like to drill down into the five uh, okay so that's kind of why i sort of check a lot of this thinking when i'm looking at these companies okay i like the company i understand it i understand its competitive strengths uh, does it have can I get an external view going? Can I build a reference class? Can I start to look at some base rates to check my thinking? And sometimes I can and sometimes I can't. And if I can't, I start to, I start to get a little nervous. Uh, for those of you who bought my book, you'll notice in the first chapter, I sort of tee up the approach. And in the first chapter, what I put in there is basically um, an external view of the economic profits of various companies and where they lie that was done by McKinsey. Uh, they call it the power curve. Uh, I'll put a copy of it in the, um, in the show notes for this podcast. But basically, they just went sector by sector, company by company, and did a massive analysis, I think, uh, that they built a book on called Beyond the Hockey Stick. And they said, look, this is the economic profits of companies. And most companies make very little economic profit. A small number, the top quintile, they make really attractive profits and the bottom quintile lose. Um, and it's also difficult to move from the middle to the top. And it's as likely that you'll fall down. 
So, you know, it's this idea, look, most companies don't make economic profit. It's a small number. And that I use, really use that to tee up uh, the whole approach for the book, which is why I start with competitive advantage first. Anyways, I'll put a, a link to that below and I'll, I'll put the power curve in the notes. But that's a good book to read, um, Beyond the Hockey Stick, a uh, very good McKinsey book. And they also did something which I'll put in the show notes called the Harry Back, which one, that's a really cool uh, idea, a good title. It's really sort of catchy. And they basically, because they would work with strategy uh, meetings, board meetings for lots of companies, and they describe it as the Harry Back, where I'm going to describe it, but it's in the link. It's below if you want to look at it. Basically, the companies would do their strategy and they would project forward growth. Next year, we're going to grow. And then the year after, we're going to grow. And then the year after, they're going to grow. So the line would go up. But then when they get to the next year to actually do the strategy planning again, they'll look like they haven't moved up. So, well, now we'll make another projection. We're going to go up next year. We're going to go up next year. We're going to go up next year. So it's like there's two lines going up and they do the next year, but they're still in the same place. And there's and the net result of this is it looks like a line with a bunch of hairs coming up because their performance didn't really change. They stayed at their base rate, but they kept having these projections going up and they call it the hairy back. Uh, I'll look at it in the show notes. Um, it's Once you see it, it'll stick in your mind forever. It's a really good sort of way to think about business. And that's companies fighting against the base rates and fighting against the external view. You know, they, everyone plans to grow and we plan to increase, but a year later, we're pretty much where we were. Maybe we grew 3 to 5%. We kind of got average performance. The average dentist is still making $250,000 a year despite all their big plans. It's just the way it is. So that's another way to think about it is the hairy back. I'll put that in the show notes. And the power curve. Um, anything else I wanted to cover today? Why do investors make mistakes? You know, why do we have a this will be the last point. Why do we get why does the internal view why is it so seductive to your typical analyst? Um, computers think in terms of big numbers and statistics and data and probabilities. That's why it, that's a very good approach to doing the external view is to do data analysis, just analytics. Our brains don't do that very well. We are not good at keeping the data for a thousand companies in our brain so we sort of gravitate to the internal view because we're good at that uh, we're good at taking things apart small things and that's that's a strength but it also plays into some psychological weaknesses i'll give you a couple um, the halo effect these are just standard psych, psych stuff um, that when we see financial performance uh, attractive financial performance, we tend to attribute it to actions and skill, not just to, hey, that's just what the whole market does. You know, the whole the whole market behaves this way. So when this company went up, it's easy to say, well, that management team was awesome. Nah, the whole market was just going up. We, we, we put a halo around certain people and actions and companies and management teams. Nah. Um, anchoring. Uh, if we grew by 8% last year and 8% the year before, when we project what the growth is going to be next year, what do we come up with? 8%, 9%, 7%. We use last year's numbers as an anchor to then project forward. Uh, that's usually not good. Um, confirmation bias. We like to study why things will work. We, we like to look for things that reaffirm the opinion we already have. Uh, we tend to avoid things that don't, and we tend not to see it. Um, you know, this is really strong in politics and ideology. Like, if you ever notice when you read the newspaper or when you read a, a news feed, you will read this, the articles that confirm what you already tend to believe is true. And if it says what you think is not true, what you think is true is not true, you will avoid it. It'll actually make your blood pressure go up. Like your blood pressure literally goes up when you read the news and you see something that sort of is against what you already believe. And then you'll immediately click on this. Why, you know, politically all the left watches certain news stations and all the right watches the other and they all, that's where they sit. Um, 
I don't know, performance attribution errors. Um, this idea that when things are going well and companies are doing successful uh, moves and you know, revenues going up, it's actually very difficult, well, let's say more difficult to understand where that is coming from. Look, was this a bunch of luck? Were you just in the right place at the right time and the market was going? Was, was this just about the market? Did you just have a hot product and people just tend to like it? Was it about management capability? I mean, when you see good performance, good momentum, um, it's actually hard to figure out why that happens. It's actually easier to figure out when things fall apart. Uh, it's easier to take apart and figure out why. Um, and, and people tend not to dig into that deep enough. Management ability versus the market is the way it is versus just luck. Just random behavior. Uh, you're, you're just doing well and you're sinking the baskets this quarter. You know, you're out on the court and for this whole half of the game, you're just sinking everything. Why? I don't know. And then the next day it doesn't happen. Um, and last one to think about. Uncertainty tends to be an afterthought. Now, those of you who've been listening to me for a while, you know I'm I'm like big into uncertainty analysis. Like, I, I do it all the time. Um, I don't want to know what the most common projection is. I want to know what, you know, what are all the possible scenarios that can happen. And I want to know the ones with the highest level of certainty. I am much happier to know and be a 98% certain of a scenario that can't happen versus a base case where we're 30%, 50% can't, certain it can happen. You know, I like to know that, like, I don't know what's going to go on with this company, but I know their revenue is not going to be above $150 million. I am almost entirely sure there's no way this company can break $150 million. So I'm going to rule out everything above $150 million. I'm also going to rule out under $100 million. I know there's no way this company can go under $100 million. It's just Coca-Cola. Everybody drinks Coke. The number of human beings is not going to decrease that much in a year. Three to five years from now, there's no way it's less than this. So I know it's more than 100. I'm confident it's less than 150. That's all I know. That is me approaching a scenario projection based on uncertainty first. Uh, and, you know, those of you, if you go back and listen to my valuation talks, that's how I approach things. I like uncertainty. Uh, uncertainty analysis as the primary thing. And then specific projections are second. So I think that's it for today. Takeaways for you would be um, maybe take a look at Kroger, go through their 10K. If Berkshire's buying this year, that you know that might well be an opportunity. Uh, maybe not. You know, make your own decision. I don't know. I, I I'm not sure why he's buying. To tell you the truth, I've looked at the numbers and I can't see why they're doing it other than maybe just the valuation, which I haven't run a valuation on that one. Um, but anyways, take a look at it. It's probably a good exercise. And if nothing else, the way they lay out the accounting for inventory and stuff is really well thought out. I found that very helpful. Uh, point number two, uh, key concept for today would be external versus internal view. Um, very important. Other concept today, regression to the mean, which is a lot about base rates, things like that. And in the show notes, I've given you some details. I've also given you... Um, graphic for the hockey stick, uh, the hairy back, uh, the power curve, and the uh, Beyond the Hockey Stick by, by McKinsey. Okay, I think that's it for today. As for me, I had a pretty great week. I went down to uh, Hua Hin for the weekend, which is uh, three, three and a half hours southwest of Bangkok. It's pretty common place for people to drive down. It's nice beach, uh, which everyone knows about. But which I didn't know about is directly to the west, you know, really right there is, you know, the largest national park in Thailand. Um, you know, it goes right up basically from the beach while you go west, then suddenly the mountains go right up and you're basically on the border with Myanmar. And uh, the mountains are absolutely beautiful. Uh, lakes, uh, you know, it's really spectacular. I think that is where the tigers start to show up. Like, There's a lot of interesting animals in Thailand, and one of them on the list that's dangerous is tigers. But they're not really in Thailand per se. They're on the border with Myanmar up in the mountains is where they tend to be. I think that's what I was thinking when I was up there. 
anyway, so I went down there because I'm playing with this idea of maybe um, having a farm, or maybe not the farm is the right word. I'm thinking more just a mountain camp, uh, somewhere to go and sit under the stars and have a house, and uh, that's kind of what I'm not going to ever do any farming. Although I, I, I do love the idea of buying a water buffalo and naming after my father. So <laughs> if I do do this, I'll, I'll get Wayne the water buffalo, uh, which I've priced out. Actually, it's only a couple thousand dollars to get a water buffalo. Uh, anyways, I, I went down there to kind of just look around and see how I felt about it. And uh, one of the subscribers, Tao, um, you know, sort of sent me a note and said, hey, you know, come down and her and her family are from... Uh, that region, uh, Pechaburi. And uh, man, I had a, a wonderful time. Uh, Tao and her father uh, took me out the whole day. It was, you know, sort of overwhelming, like all over the area, up into the mountains, up into the, you know, to the lake, uh, lunch by the lake, up in the mountains, which was absolutely beautiful. Then down to Hua Hin, you know, sort of near nightfall and to the Sikada market, for those of you who know that unbelievably nice market which i didn't really know about you know sit there and it was just fantastic and i really appreciate it so thank you to tao and father um you know that really meant a lot to me i appreciate it and um, it looks like and for those of you who aren't familiar those of you in bangkok i think you know her she has a group called vietnam value investors uh, very successful and this is for thai value investors mostly who are looking at vietnam they've been doing this for a while um fantastic um that's just a really great approach. I mean, it's just a good strategy. It's a good thing to be doing. Um, you know, if you're if you're in Thailand and you're a value investor, I would say look at China, which is kind of my thing. And, but yeah, look at Vietnam. That's a really interesting market, and I haven't really touched on that much. Um, anyways, so thank you to Tao. I really appreciate it. And it looks like I'll see you in a week or two because <laughs> I'm going back down and we'll maybe go to some other areas. But yeah, the net result of, of that sort of initial exploratory trip was this may turn out to be one of the best ideas I've ever had. It went from a funny, everything sounds good in your head, right? Or at least in mine. But then you go try it out and you're like, yeah, this doesn't work. Like last year, I thought maybe I'll, I'll, I'll do a little home in Phuket. And I flew down there a couple of times and I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to do this. It's, eh, I don't want to do it. I'll fly down when I want to go to the beach. It's $30. It's nothing. Um, this one turned out to be, because you can basically have a, a really wonderful place in the mountains or just in the hilly areas, green, lush rivers. It's absolutely beautiful. And then 30 minutes later, you can be, you know, at the uh, intercontinental bar on the beach in Hua Hin having a drink. I mean, you can just zip down the mountain um, and be sitting on one of the nicest beaches, really, you know, in Southeast Asia, you know, and have a drink and then just putter back up to your little mountain place. Uh, really easy. Anyways, I'm mulling it over, but it turned out to be a pretty great uh, experience. So thank you. I really do appreciate it, Tao and, and your father. Um, anyways, that's it for me. Um, I'm going to be around here for another um, at least three weeks, and then I'll, I'll probably bug out of Thailand. But yeah, next week back to Hua Hin. So that's it. I hope this is helpful. If I can ever be of help, don't hesitate to reach out. Um, everything's in the show notes, and I will talk to you next week. Okay, bye-bye.